0: All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 18. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you of where we are in the sermon series. Remember, last week we looked at creation and we looked at the fact that work does not um, originate with the fall. It originates as a creation ordinance. It is what we were created for. It's what we were created to do. Remember, God invites us into his creative purposes and he says, hey, I'm gonna give you gifts and I'm gonna give you a mandate and I want you to take the raw material of creation and fashion it into something glorious and beautiful. Remember that that is what we were created for, that work is a critical part of our um, communion with God. For those of you who have ever been out of work for any length of time, you felt this. You felt the weight of meaninglessness and futility and how it felt like you didn't have a purpose. And so the Lord gave us work, not just to keep us busy, not just busy work. He gave us creation work. He gave us work that could glorify him. Remember also, too, that he gave us another gift within that, a rhythm that would allow us to sustain ourselves, to be sustained. He gave us the Sabbath as a creation ordinance, not as law. And also recognize that the Sabbath came to a people who were not yet declared Jews, so the Sabbath is not entirely a Jewish concept. It's a creation concept, and that will be critical in the coming weeks as we talk more about the Sabbath. We will not touch on the Sabbath here today. Today we'll talk about work and its uniqueness within the fall. And notice how he lovingly fashioned Adam and Eve into his own image so that they would do the things that he would do, and how even the mandate that he gave them parallels the work of creation itself. When he told them to have dominion, he had already declared dominion over the heavens and the earth and how he had fashioned it. When he told them to be fruitful and multiply, he had already been fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth with everything that we could ever need. And when he tells them to subdue, he had already subdued the chaos, the darkness, the water that hovered and and kept the continents apart. He, He subdued it and brought it all into being. And so... Something happened, though, shortly after all of this took place. You know the story, the serpent creeps into the garden and he talks to Adam and Eve and they had been given one thing they couldn't touch. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And remember, the whole reason that tree is there is to remind them of what? The creator-creature distinction that they were not God. It was the one thing that would help remind them, you have everything you need, but there's one thing you don't need, and that is to know the difference between good and evil, because to know is to become. And so he didn't want them to taste of this difference. And he didn't want them to think that they themselves were gods because that is a lie. They cannot do what only he can do. And to try to do what only he can do is to separate themselves from him. And so when Satan says, did God really say, notice what he's doing. He's questioning the very word of God. He's telling them you can't have confidence in what God says. Now think about that. How many of you struggle with the same thing? You know what God has promised You know what he said. And yet you say, yeah, but does that really apply to me? After all I've been through and all I've done, can that really apply to me? You do the work of the serpent when you question the word of God. He also questioned God's work. Notice what he said. He said, listen, you can become God. Now, what have they already been fashioned in the image of? What image did they already have all over them as little replicas of the very glory of God? It had already been done. And yet Satan said, No, 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 no. No, 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 no. The work of God cannot be trusted. Not only can his word not be trusted, but God's work cannot be trusted. And so he told them, He said, You can become God, you can make that image yourself. And then when you're done, you can take and put that imprimatur upon all of creation so that it looks as distorted as you. Here's the beautiful truth, and I never really thought about it much before until studying for this passage. Satan lied. But, but he lied about something that's even more important. What he lied about is that we could be totally cut off from God. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but yeah, but what about the people who will will perish for an eternity? They won't be cut off from God. They will not be cut off from his wrath, his holiness, which they will have to endure as ones who are not covered in the righteousness of Christ. They will have to endure him based on their works, which will burn by fire. But they, even they are not totally cut off. And we who are his children in specific are definitively not cut off from all that is good. We have not been forsaken. In fact, we're going to see in Ecclesiastes where he says, I come after that which has gone away. And so praise God, Satan is the liar that he is and he doesn't have the power that he thought he had. And praise God that the fall doesn't have the impact in totality like it could have had. And praise God, the curse, the curse had a redemptive purpose. Now notice, if you are familiar with Genesis 3, the curse specifically addresses a couple of things specifically from the cultural mandate. Remember, they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. How will the woman suffer uniquely? She will suffer in that work. And he also said, have dominion and subdue the earth. And how will the man suffer uniquely? He will have thorns and thistles and the ground will fight back at him all of his days. But is, according to Psalm 127, are these things rendered to total futility? No, and amen. But so often we live as if they have been. We think that it is our due punishment. for our, you, you, we, I hear it all the time from parents. Here's how you say it. You say, when your child is particularly strong-willed, what do you say? Well, I had it coming. I was strong-willed too. I deserve this. Do you? In Christ, do you deserve to bear the fallenness in your child? Is that your due punishment? No, it is not. And don't you speak that curse over your child. Don't you speak that kind of curse on the one who carries the image of the very God, the glory of this universe? Who are you to have the final say? Now, I know that's something that we say, but words have weight and they matter. And ideas have weight and they matter. And they affect us and they change how we look at each other and how we care for one another and how we bless one another. For those of you who work, we all work, by the way, at something, but how often do we say of our work, this, this is my due punishment. I deserve to work a terrible job. I, it's just part of the fall, right? Futility. No. In fact, the author of Ecclesiastes, of all people, is going to tell us very clearly that no, that is not your fate. Yes, it is the curse That courses through things, but what was the purpose of the curse, by the way? Why did he drive Adam and Eve east of Eden? So they would come back to him. So that they would know what life apart from the presence of the Lord was like, and they would long for him so that when he he overtakes them, because he's gonna pursue them east of Eden, and he will overtake them in redemption. That they would welcome him and enjoy yet again what life is like operating within the design with which we have been given. Now, am I suggesting that we can perfect it between the now and the not yet? For those of you who say, you sound a lot like a post-millennialist. Well, no, I'm not. I'm a pan-millennialist. When Jesus shows up, it's all going to pan out. And if one of you is right and one of us is wrong, I'm fine with it as long as it wraps up and everything works out, right? I don't care who's right. I have my view based on my hermeneutic. But, but I do think that we still have, regardless, the opportunity to continue to put forth the glory of the Lord and continue the work that he gave us to do. I just don't think it's possible for us to carry it all the way there. Jesus has to show up to glorify it and make it all new. So no, I don't think we can perfect anything between the now and the not yet. We're too imperfect for all that. But we are not just left to be crushed under the weight of the fall and the weight of the curse. And that should be good news to us that the Lord would take and use something, oh, that which was meant for evil. You heard this before, by the way. And use it for good. That's why he can say that at the end of Genesis, because he said it at the beginning. He said, That which Satan meant to destroy you and take you away from me, all it is going to do ultimately is drive you right back into my arms, because I love you and you are mine. So, let's now turn to Ecclesiastes. But as we do, let me ask you. A question and then we'll read something from Tim Keller, which we should probably do because it is Presbyterian Church. And we are talking about work after all. What impact did the fall uniquely have upon work? Like, what is it exactly that the fall did to work? Well, it rendered it harder than it should have been. And why does it render it harder than it should have been every single day? Well, There's a gift. God's mercies are new every morning. It's to remind us on the hard days where we need to be. It is to drive us back to Him again and again and again and to never again believe that we could usurp the creator creature distinction. How many of you ever worked at something that you just feel like you are sweeping sand against the tide? You've done everything you can do and it doesn't change anything. Well, you shouldn't fall over because of the futility. You should run back to the Lord and ask him to make of it only what he can make, to make it new again, to make it meaningful. Listen to what Tim Keller says, and he wrote this book with Catherine Leary Alsdorf. I commend this book to you if you only read one book. We're to read one book on work uh, and, it's, and, and the, the, um, how it fits into our whole Belief system, it's called Every Good Endeavor Connecting Your Work to God's Work. Listen to what he says. He says, One of the reasons that work is both fruitless and pointless is the powerful inclination of the human heart to make work and its attendant benefits the main basis of one's meaning and identity. Did you hear what that just said? It is to make work your God. It is to make work that which defines your image. It is to go back and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all over again. Listen to what he says as he goes on. When this happens, work is no longer a way to create and bring out the wonders of the created order, as Calvin would say, or to be an instrument of God's providence serving the basic needs of our neighbor, as Luther would say. Instead, it becomes a way to distinguish myself from my neighbor to show the world and prove to myself that I am special. So instead of you being defined by the image that God placed upon you, you are choosing instead to distinguish yourself based on your gifts, your abilities, on your ability to make money, on your ability to do other things, and it causes a change in your ethics that you never see coming causes you to do things you wouldn't maybe normally do because you're saying that the, the ends justify the means. So be very careful about work. It's very dangerous. We're gonna see from the author of Ecclesiastes, there's a way in which even between the now and the not yet, even in the fall, that it can have meaning. So if you would turn to verses 18 through 23, this is uh, where the author, the teacher is going to tell us that there's a vanity in toil, I want you to pay attention and notice who is not mentioned in this section of scripture. In the next section we read, notice who is mentioned. There is a specific reason for this. Beginning in verse 18, hear the word of the Lord. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it this also is vanity and a great evil what has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation even in the night his heart does not rest this also is vanity and what view of work did the teacher just give us Notice how he's talking about work. He's saying, I, I spend all of my time, all of this effort, and I amass all of these things, and I cannot take it with me when I go. And I have to leave it to someone else, an heir or a political organization or something. And I don't get to decide what gets done with it. So all of my life's effort gets turned over to be done with whatever that next person decides to do with it, and I have no control over it. Notice this person has defined themselves by their work, yes? They have said that I am my work. Who I am matters because of my work. And if in a generation it can be gone, then in a generation I am gone. I don't even matter anymore. If this is the view that you take of work under the sun. And so we get all tangled up in being worried about how work gives us meaning. And we get tangled up in how what we do, how can we make it last? How can we make it define anything, right? Those of you who've worked for any length of time, have you not struggled with this? Wondering am I doing that? Why have I I worked for Bell South for 25 years only to have them come in and tell me that I've got to pass some computer test or I lose my status and I get reduced to basically a 22-year-old kid and I lose all of my benefits? It's a true story, by the way. Happened to one of my friend's mothers who'd worked for Bell South for years and years and years. And they came in and they said, Listen, if you can't pass this computer test, for which, by the way, we are not going to train you, you will lose all of your status. And you basically will be reduced. They used a number, I think it was like an E, from an E14 to like an E10, which means you make basically incoming wages after 25 years. Or those of you who own your own business and you build and you build and you build. And the tax code changes, and the government says, hey, more of what you've done is mine than it is yours, right? I mean, that's just how it works. Somebody else gets to decide to do with your stuff whatever they want, and if you're going to define yourself by that stuff, then if some fool comes along, to use the language of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing you can do about it. And your memory is erased, in essence, if that is where you place your hope, right? Notice who is not mentioned here. Who is it? Who's absent from this verse? God is. This is toil apart from the presence of the Lord. This is toil under the curse. This is toil according to the fall. So be very careful that you assess yourself, that you think this through, that you recognize, am I letting my work define me more than it should? Am I more concerned with my memory long after I'm gone and what gets done with what I have built? Or am I more concerned with the glory of the Lord and what he is building? You recognize his creation work is not yet done, yes? One day he's going to make all things new. In fact, I was just thinking about this yesterday as I was sitting on the back porch and the breeze was blowing and it was one of the most beautiful days I can remember. And it struck me. I am utterly blown away and drawn to this idea of all things being made new. And I'm also haunted by it. While at the same time, it brings me great comfort, it also makes me long for it in a way that sometimes I I worry, what if it's not there? What if it doesn't come? And you may say, well, I thought you were the preacher. And I'm just the chief of sinners, saved by grace. And I, too, wonder. I, too, sometimes worry. What, what is all this for? Sometimes I, say, I turn to Susan I say, hey, you realize I've hitched my wagon to this thing. If it goes down, I go down. So I, too, just like you, worry. And sometimes, guess what? I am far more defined by this work that I do, this church work, this priestly work, this shepherding work. I am far more defined by it than I ought to be. You need to pray for me in that because when I am defined by what you think of me and not what God thinks of me, you're in trouble and I am too. We're all going down. And when I turn and look and demand success and I turn to you and say, listen, My identity is tied to your sanctification. You need to grow up so I can look better. You're making me look bad out there. Don't tell them where you go to church. You crazy? (laughs) And isn't that the opposite of what we ought to do? Shouldn't we be inviting our neighbors? Shouldn't we be loving people well and wanting them to hear the word of the Lord honestly spoken? No, that's not, we're not doing Pack-a-Pew Sunday. Calm down. But I don't, I don't want to be defined this way. And me, as much as any of you, would be utterly devastating and dangerous for me to think this way. So would you kindly pray for me in this that I would not forget the work that I've been called to and would rightly place my understanding where it ought to be placed. Listen to what David Allen Hubbard, who's an Old Testament scholar, says about this passage. He says, futile and senseless it is, the preacher complained, to pay the demanding price to acquire goods and wealth. We cannot take them with us. The wise man knew that. But what pained him even more was that an entirely different, unworthy heir might gain the comfort and the glory. No biblical passage paints a grimmer picture of what it costs to succeed on human terms and how fragile that success is. Have you ever experienced the vanity and despair of work in this fashion? What was the primary cause? Was it how you thought about it? Was it your theology? Was it Pharaoh who loomed over you as part of the fall and said, make more but with less? Anybody ever had that happen in your job? Hey, listen, uh, I yeah, I'm going to need you to get those TPS reports to me on Saturday. Yeah. I, you know, we've all experienced it, right? The futility of these things. And you want to you scream. But screaming doesn't change it, does it? Knocking over the cubicles doesn't change it, does it? Demanding more flair doesn't change it, does it? no. Only a change in your understanding of how God has designed us and what he has given us in Christ is going to change any of this. One of the worst jobs I think I've ever had. Uh, I was about 15. I grew up in a trailer park on the south side of Atlanta. And a friend came to me and said, Hey, man, we're going to make thousands of dollars. Which I should have probably assessed that. <laughs> But it didn't take me 13 milliseconds to be greedy and long for. Yeah, what do we got to do to do that? He goes, all right, meet me on the corner uh, tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. and this guy's going to pick us up and we're going to do construction work. Oh, yeah, that's how you make thousands of dollars in the trailer park. You do construction work, you become a pro wrestler. It's kind of either or. And so (laughs) this guy picks us up, sure enough, and he carries us to this school now, what they were doing to the school roof, if you know anything about school roofs, they're flat, thank goodness. For, in one sense, thank goodness. And, uh, and, and, and what they were doing is, is they were tarring it, and then they were putting down this white foam, okay? Now, this was July in Georgia, right, south of Atlanta. So, tar is what color? Black, and what does the sun do with black substances? It just sucks into it, right? So I think it was about 150 degrees, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. So we had to carry these 50-pound buckets up this rickety ladder. I don't know why it is. It's like, let the young kids have the rickety ladder. So we <laughs> carry these 50-pound buckets, and we tar this roof, and it's just horrible. I think I had fifth-degree sunburn after just doing that. And then we had to spray this foam down, which is white. What does the sun do with the white surface? It reflects... <laughs> So you get baked even better. If the black didn't get you, the white does. And then if that was not enough, the boss comes up there and as you might imagine, he's a pretty gruff guy, he goes, hey kid, there's a bunch of bubbles all over this white substance. You gotta take an exacto knife, you gotta cut out the bubbles, it's gotta be flat. I'm like, it's a roof, who's gonna see? I didn't say that out loud because I don't wanna make thousands, right? <laughs> I'm gonna be rich. And so I had to, we had to lay down with an exacto knife and slowly cut these little bubbles. And so at the end of nine hours of this, we get home, and, 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 and I say, all right, Michael, Michael, where's the money? He's like, uh-uh. Ah, he, he hadn't paid us yet. We've got to go back tomorrow. What? What do you mean he hadn't paid us? So we go back tomorrow, and we do it again. And it took about six weeks for us to get paid for those two horrible days of work. And guess how much money I made? How much? You're very close. I made $24 brand spanking new beautiful dollars. Twenty-four dollars for over 18 hours of work. I don't know, uh, do we have any math people in here? The math doesn't do well there. This was back when minimum wage was not that low, I promise you. It was crazy, but it was utter futility and it was terrible. And it left us feeling less than men, interestingly. But it also sparked me and said, I can't do this for, I better get an education. This is a bad idea. And so, but that was one of the worst jobs I've ever had. And again, it left me feeling, interestingly, even that young, less than a man. Is that what work should do to us? No. No, it shouldn't. But let's look at the alternative. And notice who shows up here, verses 24 through 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give who pleases God. Give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, we've got to be careful. That last sentence doesn't negate the previous verses. That is specifically to, um, connected to the sinner who will do all the work and then turn it over to someone else. That is the vanity. The rest of it is not vanity. And notice again, the teacher tells us, there's a way in which your work can matter. There's a way in which your work can actually bring enjoyment and meaning to you. And what is it? when it is done in the presence of the Lord, when it is done for the purposes of the Lord, when it is from his hand. So the teacher recognizes that there's a way in which we relate to God covenantally that can bring meaning to what we spend the majority of our lives doing, right? Even for those of us who work some of the jobs that we do that have softer boundaries, you still spend the majority of your life doing that, Stay-at-home moms work more hours than anybody because where's the line? Like, where's the clock you get to punch in and punch out? How does it change? The most overworked people of all and husbands, you would do well to recognize that and honor and glorify them and how you treat them. Let me give you just a quick bit of advice. Don't ever come home and say, but I've worked all day. What'd you just say? And you haven't. No. That's foolishness. And we would do well as a church, too, to honor and help glorify this. It's not the only thing that women can do, by the way. It is one of the things. Are there women who work in the Bible? You better believe they are. What does the Proverbs 31 woman do? She works outside the home, actually. What does Lydia do? She sells die and other things. She works outside the home, so don't. it's not more biblical to do one than the other. However, there is something far more difficult about doing the stay-at-home mom thing because, again, there's no boundaries. And we would do well to help create some so that there can be rest and enjoyment of the Lord. So, here we see that doing things with God takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2 and reminds us of who we were created to be. See, when we do work that is heartily unto the Lord and we do all things in Christ, when we do that which glorifies God, it restores something to us. It takes away the meaninglessness and the tyranny that is work apart from God. It actually brings enjoyment and allows us to eat of the fruit of its labor and not worry about what comes next because God has it taken care of, which we're going to see in the next section. This is why Jesus can say what he says in Matthew 6, 19 through 24. He says, where should you store up your treasure? In heaven. Store up your treasure in heaven. Do that which brings glory to the Lord because it lasts. Don't be like the fool who stuffs stuff into storehouses only to have death come calling for him and he not be able to do anything with it and just be reduced right back to Ecclesiastes 2.18. Through twenty-two. Twenty-three. Listen to what Craig Bartholomew says of this. He says, Eating and drinking and enjoying one's work are an expression of shalom. Now, if you don't know what the word shalom means, it's Hebrew for the restoration of all things. When all things are made right and we are in right relationship with the Lord. So he's saying, Eating and drinking and enjoying one's work are an expression of shalom. It means an expression of our relationship to God as covenant God. That God intended for his creation and humankind in particular. It is this vision evoked with Eden in Genesis 2 and in the promises to the Israelites about the good land of Israel. So this verse tells us that all is not lost. There is a way for that which you do to bring you enjoyment. For that which you do to bring fruit. That you can partake of. And it's good. The, the fall did not take. And make everything not good. It made us blind to all that is good. So have you ever experienced. Enjoyment in your work. Right. Have you ever had that uh, a season. In which you felt like. Man, I'm, this is fulfilling. This is good. And the answer is hopefully is yes. And what was the primary cause? Now, for those of you who don't know, I used to be a physical therapist. I was a physical therapist for 15 years. And one of the, one of the things that was difficult about being a physical therapist is the ever-changing uh, landscape of insurance and billing and all these kind of crazy things, right? And so one of the things they used to love to do, the insurance companies, is they would just quit paying for something and not tell you. And you would rack up, you know, $60,000 worth of having charged for that. And they're like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, we don't pay for that anymore as of two years ago. And you're like, what are you going to tell me? Um, and so there was always this kind of game of hide and seek, and, and it was just a mess, right? However, there were times at which I, I don't know that I have found a, a deeper and richer um, blessing than when I was a physical therapist and being able to see the difference that could be made in people's lives. Um, the first time that this occurred to me is um, I served on the neuro unit at uh, what at the time was South Fulton Hospital. It's now Atlanta Regional. I don't know. They've been bought out like three or four times. And there was this guy there named Justin Tebaut. And Justin Tebaut was Cajun. And Justin Tebow was also a raging diabetic who had gone blind because of glaucoma because he didn't care about his blood sugar. He ate at Burger King every day. And he had one of his legs amputated above the knee. Uh, And Justin weighed about 340 pounds. Justin was African-American and everybody had given up on Justin. And so he lands on the student's schedule at the time. And I walk up and I see him sitting and I'm thinking, what are we gonna do with this man? What, what physical therapy are we going to do with this fellow? He's had, also had part of his foot amputated. And so I, I walked up and I said, uh, Mr. Tebow, what, what, uh, what brings you here today? Which is a stupid question. Uh, and he was gracious enough to say, well, it really helped me if I could get to where I could stand so I could just, just, just pull my pants down so I could go to the bathroom and not make a mess. And I said, okay, I can do that. So I helped him and I worked with him and uh, befriended him and one day he's, he starts crying and I said, Justin, what's wrong? He said, Mr. Cameron, you're the first person that's ever, ever taken any time with me, ever cared about me. I know what people think about me. I know what they see when they look at me. I know what they're thinking, even though they think I'm blind, I feel it. And you're the first person that's ever cared enough about me to, to actually help me with something, I wanna bless you. And so a couple days later, I was in staff meeting. I'm standing there, and this gentleman comes in, and he holds up a bag from Burger King. And I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I, I, I love a Whopper. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't eat them anymore. I eat one not. It's been a few months back, and it, the memory's gone. The, the love has faded between us, me and the Whopper. <laughs> but back in the day, man, I loved a Whopper. I don't know if it was the mayonnaise or something, the flame broiledness, something. But it was, it was this beautiful moment. Man, I just, I just broke down in a staff meeting. And, you know, it was so rich and meaningful. And, and yet when I walked up, I didn't think there was enough there to recreate with. And yet there was. And it was to the glory of the Lord. It was because I in that moment, recognize, no, Justin's created in God's image, even though he doesn't give a rip about that it doesn't look like, and he is killing our insurance system and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, maybe we should just throw him on the trash heap, but no, we should not. He was able to not just be blessed, but be a blessing and reminded me of who I am in God. And you too can have that experience. And no matter what you do, for those of you who work with numbers, we've got a couple of actuarials in here and CPAs, you go, yeah, but you don't get to have cool experiences like that necessarily. Yeah, you kind of do. I mean, it matters. Numbers matter, don't they? What keeps a, a business afloat? You are contributing to the future of dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands through the survival of that business and those things so there's ways in which we can recognize that our work is unto the Lord and there are ways in which we can do it that is a blessing to all around. And I would encourage you in that. This next piece, uh, 1 through 15, we'll have to move through pretty quickly, but it tells us the theology of how it is that you can have meaning in your work. So if you would turn your attention again to the scripture. It says for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. And what the teacher is telling us is that, yes, there's a way in which you can have your work be utterly meaningless. Disregard the Lord. There's a way in which your work can have meaning. And part of understanding that is recognizing the creator-creature distinction there is one who has determined a time and a season for everything. He who is providential and sovereign, he determines when and where things happen ultimately because it is him who is Lord of all. And when we recognize that, when we see that it is the Lord's to do when he chooses to do and we submit ourselves to the promise that he will make everything, notice this, everything beautiful in its time. You should hear the future promise that he will make all things new. Everything will be made beautiful in its time, not just then, but it's being done even now. As we come to know the Lord, we are made beautiful in his time. As we grow in sanctification, we are being made beautiful according to his time. He is sovereign. Listen to the other promise that he gives: Eternity has been placed in your heart, and it cannot be taken away. Satan cannot take that which is firmly in his grasp. That should give you great comfort, parents. for your children. For your children, that should give you great comfort for your parents. And yet, what do we do? Yeah, that's great and all. But uh, I need to know how all this stuff works before I get all tangled up in it. I need to understand the beginning from the end. I know I'm finite, and I know it's going to take eternity, and I don't have it. But shoot, let's just start and try. You better tell me why you're going to do this, God, before I'll follow you instead of trusting. No, he makes everything beautiful, and it's time. He's placed eternity in your heart. What more could you ask for from him? Trust him. Trust how he has gifted you by a show of hands. This will be this is a safe question, so you're okay. How many of you are great, gifted at math? Who made you that way? Was it because you decided one day, I'm going to be a math wizard. I'm just going to study geometry. I'm going to just hours and hours. You're a prodigy because you put all this effort into it. Or was there just something kind of natural about it? How many of you would have confessed that numbers scare me? I'm bad at that. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of you. I wouldn't. When my wife and I got married, she grabbed my checkbook and saw that the last entry was some three years prior. (laughs) There's one of us that doesn't do the finances and it ain't her. <laughs> I don't do them. Right, how many of you are gifted at, at the abstract and you can remember what you read and you can, you're reading comprehension, you're very gifted at? How many of you are not? It, just those tests just terrify you. Can I just point out that we may have set a record for hands raised in a worship service in a Presbyterian church? <laughs> a side note and that was free. All right, so <laughs> I knew I'd get you guys at some point. we were somehow somewhere. But what I want you to notice is that you are naturally fashioned and gifted, right? And, and, and there's a way in which you've been designed that the Lord has been gracious to, to give you something so you can contribute to this world. Receive it as gifts. Don't fight against it. And parents, please, do not tell your children that they can be anything they want. They can't. That's a lie. That's a a lie from Satan himself. I can't tell you how many students I had come in saying, I want to be a physical therapist because I can be anything I want to be. And I would say, I I can solve that like this. What's your GPA? Uh, 2.2, you're not going to be a physical therapist, I promise you. You're not. There's no way. You can't even get in the door without a 3.5. You're not making it to the next round without a 3.75 or whatever it is nowadays. So you can't be anything you want to be. And some may say, well, if they tried harder. No, some people just aren't gifted at academics. We've done this world a disservice when we say that the mechanical and other things are somehow lesser. Tell me who you call when your toilet backs up. An academic to come tell you why it's backing up and the physics of it? No, you call someone who can fix it. There was a gentleman in Macon who loved the Lord and he started a plumbing company And he has made all kind of money as a plumber. And he is one of the most philanthropic people I know. And employs people who have no business being employed, who are on their fifth or sixth or seventh or 18th chance. Electricians, all of these things, a mechanic, all these things matter. And for some reason, we've said to people, these things are of lesser importance. Some of you are artists and the world needs beauty. Remember what it said of the trees in the garden first. They were made beautiful to the sight and were good for food. We need all of these things. And the Lord has uniquely gifted you. For those of you who are in college or you're, you're a high school student, don't you dare look at what you can make from it first. Ask how you are gifted. Go into that which matters and can actually make a difference in this world instead of making just money. Now, making money is not bad either because I need you to tithe, and we have missionaries and all these things. So if you're going to do that, if you're gifted at making money, which some of you are, I'm not, then we need you. The kingdom needs you. But have a kingdom mindset. Recognize that it is how the Lord has fashioned you. I would love, my wife will tell you, I would love to have been like the next Tom Waits or Bob Dylan. And I probably have a similar voice to both, but I just don't have the same panache. And and so it's just not going to happen. I may want to be that. I don't have the gifts. God didn't make me that way. And so instead of pushing against how you are made and telling God that he made a mistake, receive it as gift and find out where you can do that work to his glory and to his honor and let him make it beautiful in his time. Let him fashion you into his image through how he has gifted you and where he has placed you instead of kicking against the goads all the time and demanding from him more than what he's already given. He's placed eternity into your heart, and he's promised he will make it beautiful in time. And that last promise, so beautiful and so appropriate as we will transition in just a moment to the Lord's Supper, that God seeks what has been driven away. What was driven away? His own people east of Eden, for their own good, so that they wouldn't be sealed in the lie. Listen to what Zach Eswine says about this passage in a book called Recovering Eden, the Gospel According to Ecclesiastes. He says, in other words, the best good in the madness under the sun is found when we recover some small resemblance to what we were made for in Eden. We remember that God's gift to humanity has not quit, even though we have and the the world now groans. We remember Adam and Eve's season prior to the fall, and we learn again to long for that recovery while we are migrants here, worn out among the shanties. So how has God gifted you to display his glory? How has he uniquely fashioned you to contribute to the raw material that is this world? And how has God maybe used a season of challenge to help shape you and form you? Probably one of the most powerful times in my physical therapy career was when I was passed over for a promotion that would have paid my school loan off 10 years ago. It was in being passed over, which I wasn't very happy about at the time, by the way. But it was in being passed over and continuing to do the work that I felt that I was called to do that my boss who was selected in my place, came to know the Lord. He said, it was you, he said, man, I, I've, never, I, I've never seen anybody who was wronged, as wronged as you were, continue to work to build up. He said, man, you were my closest friend. You're my greatest ally. You always made me look good. And you never took the credit. He said, that, that's baffling to me. you got to tell me how that went. Shared the gospel. And he became a believer. Which would I trade? Which was more important in heaven? Me paying my school loan off 10 years ago? Or me paying my school loan off two years ago? I mean two weeks ago. And, and him being a believer. So the Lord is always at work in all things. Let him do what he does best. Which is be sovereign. And providential. So three things we learn from this. Number one, selfish work leads to despair. If you're going to serve you and your purposes with your work, you will at some point find yourself in despair. Two, work for the glory of God is a gift and it can actually bring you enjoyment from the fruit of your labor. Three, God's purposes for how he gifts us and where he places us is always for our greatest good. Always. John Mark Comer in Garden City says this about the fall, which I think is a good place to return to as we transition to the table. He says, why would a loving, generous creator curse his own creation? Is he cruel, sadistic, psychopathic, just plain mean? No, the curse is a blessing and camouflage. It's God's love in disguise, his mercy incognito, because the curse drives us again and again and again and again back to the Lord our God. And so, one of the great ways that he has come after us and one of the great ways in which he has shown his love for us is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, the elders can go ahead and come forward. And he pursues us in and through Jesus and he actually redeems us and he regifts us and he transforms us into the image of Christ. I want you to notice that in this table is the, the, all of the fullness of what we need between the now and the not yet. All of the nourishment, all of the meaning is in these meager elements, the bread and cup. And in, in this, we are reminded over and over again who we are and whose we are. This table says, You are not the creator. You are not God. You are the creature and I am God. And it reminds us that I will make everything beautiful in its time and that I have placed eternity into your heart and I have gifted you and I will continue to nourish you and give you everything you need to serve me in a fallen world. Note what Christ said on that first Lord's Supper and the last Passover that he would spend with his people. As they were sitting around... Wondering what the future would hold, notice that he took something very common, something that they would, they would encounter on a regular basis, something that would be a perpetual reminder to them. He, he took bread and he said, "Hey, I want you to, to know that this, this this bread represents my body, which is broken for you, and what did he mean by his body being broken for them that 's important for us to remember as we will take of these elements in just a moment. it is it is that he's reminding them that your sin, past, present, and future, the fall, the curse, does not determine who you are. That's what he's saying to them. He's saying that your mistakes do not define you if you receive this broken bread. I, I now will define you. You will be recreated in my image, which is in the glory of God. And so in the broken bread, we have the fullness of our sin, past, present, and future taken away. As far as the east is from the west, so that we could do the good work that God has gifted us and called us to do. And not only that, but we, we have the total wrath of God taken away, so that when you don't get this right, so that when you go to work tomorrow or even today, for those of you who will go to work today, and you don't get it right, There's tomorrow where his mercy is new and you can rise again. And this table says there is grace enough for you. Amen? Let me pray for the bread. And then as we pass it, you can hold for those of you who have gluten intolerance or issues with germs, there's a little lifesaver uh, wafer for you. And for those of you who want to pull off the bread, which is like one of you, I think, Wes Calton, you can do that, the rest of you think it's gross, let it pass by, <laughs> let that pass by. Hey, let me tell you this though, don't, don't eat this bread if you're not a believer. It's not gonna nourish you, in fact, it's gonna actually remind you of the curse. It's gonna remind you of the futility of all that we do because you're under the curse, you're not under redemption. So if you don't believe, just let it go. You can eat lunch later. You also shouldn't take of this table if you currently harbor unforgiveness in your heart towards someone else. If you think that you are better than them by virtue of your forgiveness, no, you are not. You are saved by grace alone through faith alone, by Christ alone. Now maybe you're in the process of working some things out reconciliation-wise and you need this table. But if you refuse that process, you've got to let this pass over you and get that right, and then you can come back next time and dine. So those are the the main reasons. And if you are, for some reason, under church discipline at your home church, um, we would need to talk to you about that before you could take of this table. They still have sanction over you. I don't know who you are. I don't suspect there's anyone in that category. But if for some reason you are, let the work of the Lord through the discipline of the church work in you before you take of the table. And once it's done, receive it as sweet. Let me pray for it first. Father, thank you for the broken body of Christ, that it accomplishes what none of us could tolerate or ever do. Thank you that you loved us so much, that you gave us a reminder, a table in the wilderness of who we are and whose we are, and that you will make everything beautiful in its time, and that you have placed eternity in our hearts, and that our work here could be good, and that it could be enjoyable, and that the fruit of our labor could be a blessing, not just to us but to our neighbors as well. We pray for this in Christ's name, amen.